Hear the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord is saying. Arise, lay out the lawsuit before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, mountains, the lawsuit of the Lord. Hear, eternal foundations of the earth. The Lord has a lawsuit against his people. With Israel, he will argue. My people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam before you. My people, remember what Moab's king Balak had planned and how Balaam, Beor's son, answered him. Remember everything from Shittim to Gilgal that you might learn to recognize the righteous acts of the Lord. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my spirit. He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. To do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you didn't know it, we're in the season of Advent, if you didn't know that already. And we're starting off uh, this week, actually, where I'm combining two sermon series in one sermon. It's going to be a miracle. (laughs) Um, But as you saw from the video, today, we're entering into the season of Advent, and we're going to be talking about the Advent conspiracy. And today, we're going to be talking about worship fully, this idea that we worship fully with our lives Uh, God, the God who came to be with us. So we're going to talk about worship fully. We're also wrapping up a sermon series about our core practices as a church. And the last one is to do justice. And to do justice is part of the ripple effect we've been talking about. If you, I thought we'd just review all five this morning. So the first one, let's all read these together. Can you, everybody see it on the screen behind me? So the first one was, let's all say it together, live honestly. Then the second ripple was teach one another to follow Christ. That was the attitude. It didn't fit on the slide, sorry. And then practice hospitality. You got that? Next one is invite others to follow Jesus. And then today is do justice. All right? And so we're going to be talking about this practice of doing justice and this core practice of doing justice. And the amazing thing about this, I don't know if you heard it in the scripture today, but the prophet Micah put those two together right in that chapter six, where he talked about worship and he talked about justice, that there's a connection between worship and justice. Did you ever think about that? 
Did you ever think about that there's this connection between worship and justice? I learned this uh, from being a part of a Micah group out of Fuller Seminary a few years ago. Uh, some of you may remember a person around. Some of you may remember Tim Dearborn, who was the head of that when I was a part of that. And we talked a lot about the connection between worship and justice in the world and how we as preachers need to look at worship and justice together. And so Micah does that for us. And so to kind of help us get our head around that idea, I thought I'd take you to back to your car. How many people, some people took the bus this morning. I know some people rode bikes, but how many people drove a car this morning to church or rode in a car, right? And so how many people have ever driven a car? How about that? Let's go with that. I'm looking for everybody. All right, everybody's together now. So when you get into a car, you sit behind a steering wheel, right? And do you know how that works? I mean, some of you may know, but you just know that if I turn the wheel one way, the wheels go that way, and I turn the wheel the other way, the wheels go that way. But actually what you're doing is you're using what's called rack and pinion, rack and pinion steering in your car. So at the end of your steering wheel, there's a little gear called the pinion, and it, it drives a rack that's attached to the wheels, and, it sh and as you turn the wheel, that rack slides back and forth, turning the wheels of your car. So there's a connection the connection here is to what is going on inside of the car, you the driver, to what's actually the direction the vehicle is going in as it goes about town or goes wherever. So there's something happening inside the car, someone making decisions inside the car that affects the direction in which the vehicle externally goes. So I would say to you there's a connection between what is going on inside of us as human beings and what, how we conduct our lives and how we use our, our, make decisions and do things in the direction that our life is going. And so we know that there's this connection. So just hold on to that kind of metaphor analogy as we go through the sermon this morning because I'm going to come back to it a few more times this morning about this connection and I'm going to be making the connection between worship and justice. But let's now, if you want to turn with me, I'm, you can use your pew Bibles this morning. That's right in front of you. We're using the CEB version today. You can turn to page 1129. 1129, chapter 6 is there, which you heard read this morning. We're looking at the prophet Micah. Micah is this prophet. Uh, I remember Micah this way, and you will probably remember him from now on this way. He is the naked prophet. Because the, earlier in the book of Micah, he talks about walking through the streets naked. As a, as a sign of shame on Israel. And so can you imagine being a prophet? <laughs> you know, I, I tell people come to me and say, I've got the gift of prophecy. Well, okay, uh, <laughs> let's go take a look at Micah and see what Micah did or Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. They did some wild things, you know, that, to call attention to what was going on in Israel. And so they would do some things that were public displays. You know, Jeremiah, I think, had to bury some dirty underwear, things like that. You know, things that just seem obscure to us or seem strange to us, but they were meant to give a message to Israel. And so that's part of that. But Micah is basically saying to Israel, you all have not been doing right in your lives. There were two areas that Micah's particularly geared, uh, cued in on, and that is worship and what's happening in the temple, and also what is happening to the poor. So what's happening in worship and what's happening to the poor are two big concerns of Micah. So the, one of the things that was going on in the temple was there was a perversion of, of temple worship. They had brought in idols. They had brought in Canaanite worship, another type of practice. They were following occult practices, divination, sorcery, witchcraft. They also had leaders in the temple that were pursuing wealth 
at the expense of the poor and the widows and the orphan and the sojourners in them. And so they were actually using the temple system as a way to get wealthy rather than help people worship God. And so we can think about it that way. I think about sometimes how sometimes we in the church can even be kind of become consumer driven in our worship or consumer driven in the church. We see that a little bit in the Advent conspiracy as well, this kind of movement away from being consumer driven. Also, I think about the other thing that was going on is that they were using temple prostitution to fund the temple and what was happening in the temple. So this was another practice in the temple that was going on. And all this was actually the pursuit of wealth. And so Micah's very concerned. He's upset. He's saying God's judgment has come. That's God's lawsuit. Notice the language at the beginning of chapter six here about a lawsuit. God's got a lawsuit against the people of Israel. And that lawsuit has to do with the practices happening in the temple and temple worship. And bottom line, too, is that the other thing that's going on within the culture there that Mike is speaking to is that the people were neglecting the poor among them, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Now, a sojourner is a person who comes and lives with you temporarily and then moves on. And I think about that as being like the refugee or a homeless person could be a sojourner in today's world. And so we have to think about the neglect of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Why were they neglecting the poor? Because they were pursuing wealth and they were pursuing more. They were also using unfair scales and judgments in favor of the wealthy. So people were using unfair scales and weights and measures to take advantage of people and gain more money. They were murdering, lying, and stealing. They were abusing political power and judicial powers to take land and homes from the poor and give it to themselves. And the other thing that Micah points out that we probably don't often think about, but he actually says that they were becoming dependent on a military weapon called the chariot and the horse. Have you ever heard, you know, some trust in chariots, some trust in horse? Because if you were, you have to go back to Micah's day. Think about way back when it was hand-to-hand combat, right? And so if you're fighting hand-to-hand combat, you have a fair fight when it's, it's person to person, right? But if somebody were to hop into a chariot surrounded by armor and put a horse on the front of it and then go into battle, that would be considered an unfair advantage in hand-to-hand combat. It's like showing up for a boxing match and you've got your gloves on and then your opponent is twice your size and has Kevlar armor on and a helmet and no gloves on the end of the fist. See, it would be an unfair advantage to enter into the ring that way. And so what Micah is saying is that they were trusting in more and more military power, escalating military power rather than trusting in God. You know, I think about that today. The example that I thought about today was, you know, nuclear proliferation. I mean, with the, with the touch of a button, with the launch of a button, we can, we can kill millions of people. And so that seems to me to be in some ways an unfair advantage, especially when you can do it from a distance and do it from afar, like trusting in chariots and horses, what Micah points out. So he's talking about how they're fighting wars, being unjust and unfair. But all of this, if you look at all of the driver, right? Remember the steering, the driver behind the steering wheel? That's you, that's me. The driver behind all that was the pursuit of wealth, was the pursuit of more. That's what was driving a lot of the injustice that he was talking about. Now, you and I can look at Micah and we go, okay, so that, you know, they were neglecting the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, and that was an injustice, but we don't have that today, do we? Have we ever been a 
part of injustice in our society? I have. I'll tell you that there was a time in the mortgage industry in the 20th century where they would take the mortgages and they would say that certain places that you could live, you could get a mortgage. So they created four different categories for them in the mortgage industry. And what they did was they categorized neighborhoods and they said that if you want to buy a house in this neighborhood, we'll say yes to a mortgage here. But if you're over here in this neighborhood, which we don't think is a good place to invest, we're going to say no to buying a house for you to get a mortgage in the neighborhood. That's, what, that's where they drew what was called the red line. And that was a red line area, a red line neighborhood. This happened in cities all across America, including Seattle. This was called redlining. And so what happened was that within the mortgage industry, what was happening is that if you lived in this undesirable neighborhood or wanted to buy a house in this undesirable neighborhood, you couldn't get a mortgage. And then you add to that, well, if you can't get a mortgage from the mortgage industry, then who do you turn to to buy a home? Well, unfair lending lenders would come in and offer you money to buy the house. But if you defaulted on one single payment, one single payment, they would take your house from you. So you could make payments for 10 years on your house, miss one payment, and that mortgage lender who was unfair and unjust unjust in in their practices would take your house away from you. And then they would reclaim the land and the property, just like in Micah. They were using the system, the judicial system, to actually take homes and things from people. Now, you want to take a guess at who lived in those neighborhoods, those neighborhoods that were redlined? African-Americans. So if you, wanted, if you were an African-American in the 40s or the 30, 40s and you wanted to buy a house in the Red Line District, you couldn't get a mortgage. But you might be able to work a deal out with one of those unfair lenders that I talked about, right? And then if I wanted to move into the suburbs, I could get a mortgage. And so if you look across the landscape of America and you look at where people are living in America, it's actually partially a result of that practice, that unfair practice of giving mortgages to some people and not to other people, depending on where they were living. And so that was an unfair practice. And so the way I, this is my perspective, the way I see it is my grandfather, after coming back from World War II, got a mortgage to buy a house in the suburbs. So my family benefited from that practice. Whereas an African-American family coming back from World War II did not have the same advantage. So there was an injustice in the system that actually was about the pursuit of what? Wealth. And so I am actually a part of that. That's, what I, that's why we may, may or may not like the term white privilege, but that's part of that idea, is that there were unjust injustices in the system that enabled some people to get wealthier and other people not to get wealthier. So the rich become richer and the poor become poor. That's exactly what Mike is talking about. He's talking about the pursuit of wealth where rich people become richer and poor people become poorer. And so he speaks out against this, what he, Micah calls this perversion of justice and this perversion of worship in the pursuit of wealth. Does this at all feel familiar? Right? These two things that Micah's pointing out. This is the thing about prophets. They're not, they don't make us comfortable, do they? That when the prophets speak, it makes us uncomfortable And there are times when we have to be uncomfortable because of what God wants to do in our lives. So we have to do justice. You know, 
Jesus made this connection as well when he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils, notice this, come from inside and defile a person. That all these evils come from what's happening inside the car at the steering wheel of our lives that determine the direction that our lives go and where the wheels and what the wheels are aimed at and what the direction of our lives are aimed at. Jesus said that, Micah said that, there's a connection between the heart of worship and the heart of justice. These two things are tied together. So we tend to think, right, when we realize this, and this is what Micah is saying, is that when we realize this, we actually begin to think, oh, I need to, I need to make amends with God. I need to go talk to God about this, right? That's a good desire. That's a good thing. And so, but what does Micah say about worship in chapter 6? What, what does he say about them coming to worship? He says what? H- how many rams could you bring? Look at the text in your Bible. What is, what is, how many rams did Micah suggest bringing? A thousand. So you could bring a thousand rams, right? Uh, what, how much oil? Torrents of oil. You could bring a thousand rams. You could bring torrents of oil, right? You can see this kind of overly abundant act of worship, right? And, and Micah says what? It's, it's not what God wants. <laughs> that, that's not what God's looking for. That, so no matter how much I give, that's not what God is looking for. I remember uh, uh, several years ago, does anybody remember NBA star Kobe Bryant? Remember Kobe Bryant? Uh, great NBA basketball player. I, uh, I think it was in 2010, he was accused of, of sexual misconduct and he cheated on his wife and he admitted to cheating on his wife. And so does anybody remember what Kobe Bryant did first to repair his relationship to his wife? Does anybody remember? A big, yeah, see, a big diamond ring, right? A big honking diamond ring. I'm sure she accepted it. I know she accepted it, right? But is that really what she was looking for? It, it, was that really what she wanted from him? Was a big diamond ring? Or was there something more she was looking for relationally? Wasn't she looking for a change in behavior? Wasn't she looking for a change in conduct? Wasn't she looking for a different, she needed to see from him that he was not going to do this anymore, that he was going to live differently, he was going to behave differently, so that what was going on inside his heart was going to change and his outward conduct was going to change. There was a connection, right? And the only way to repair that relationship was not through a diamond ring, but through different behavior that rebuilt trust in that relationship. That's what Micah's saying. You can come to God with all the diamond rings to try and repair that relationship with God, but really what God is asking for is that you change your conduct, your behavior. Change that. Now, if you put yourself behind the car, so here's the way I look at what we do, even in the church and in in Christian circle. Here's what we do with God is that we're in, imagine again, we're, you're in the car, you're at the steering wheel, and the, the car represents your life. And you're in charge of your life. You are making the decisions as to the direction your life is going, right? But you realize, you know, I'd like to do life with God rather than without God. So you invite God into the car. And I want you to imagine God is sitting next to you in the passenger seat. If God is your co-pilot, move over. No, I'm kidding. That's a bumper sticker, and that's actually not what I'm saying. Or, you know, I'm also not saying, 
or singing along with Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the wheel, right? That's not what we're talking about. I want you, I believe that God leaves the steering wheel of your life in your hands. But when we invite God into the car with us and we invite God to be a passenger with us in life and we invite God into our lives and God is there in the car with us, we can sit there at the steering wheel all we want and say, God, I'm really sorry I did terrible, you know, I'm sorry I did that, you know, or I'm sorry that I'm not focused on you or, you know, didn't I do a good job last week when I was nice to my wife? Did you see that? You know, we can have all these conversations with God. But our car can still be going in the same direction, pursuing things that God doesn't want us to pursue. And so what God is actually looking for from us as we drive our lives is if I were to actually say to God, God, what do you want me to do? God would say, turn the car around. Make a U-turn. Because God knows until you and I actually turn the wheel of our conduct, see, that's where the what? We say the rubber meets the road. When Kobe, why, Kobe's, what, uh, Bryant's wife said, I want to see something change, that's where the rubber meets the road. What God is saying is you can worship me all you want, but if you still got your car, your life aimed in a direction that I'm asking you not to go, then you need to turn the car around. You need to change where the rubber meets the road, where behavior happens, where conduct happens, where justice happens. That's what God is saying. That's what Micah is saying on behalf of God. Old Testament professor Dr. Ralph Smith said this. I think he sums it up beautifully. He says, so when we come before God, we must remember that it's not so much what is in our hands but what is in our hearts that finds expression in our conduct that is important. Heart and hands, worship and justice go together. So what does Micah say? Well, if a worship, all this offering and uh, aren't going to do it, what does the Lord require of you and me? And we know this verse very well. This, look at verse 8. Let's read that verse together on the screen or in your Bible. He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. To do justice means to make right decisions and to make righteous judgments and good judgments that does not show favoritism to the people around you or other places in the world. Whenever we do things that favor one group over another, that's injustice. And so to do justice is to actually not show favoritism, to see everybody as equal worth and worthy to be loved and worthy to be valued and that we treat them with that same worth and respect and dignity that we would want to be treated. That's what Jesus said. So that's justice. Now, I want to ask you uh, to do a little illustration with me. And if you're comfortable with the person next to you, not everybody can do because you may be sitting next to a stranger and this may be a little uncomfortable for you. But if you're okay with, you know, get the permission from the stranger to do this. But I want you to look at the, the collar of the person in the shirt in front of you or beside you. Just, just go ahead, look at the collar, look at the label and find out where, what country was that shirt made in? What country was that shirt made in. Look at somebody's shirt and find out if there's a label of a country. Can you find the country? I love it. Group participation, right?
All right. Raise your hand if you found a country. Raise your hand if you found a country. All right, great. I won't, we could go on all day looking for the country that your shirt was made in, right? So uh, give me, uh, who's, name some countries that you saw. China. China. All right, I want you to remember that. China. Anybody else here in a different country than China? Whoa, everybody at once. Bangladesh. China, Bangladesh. United States. USA. Yeah, all right. What's that? Scotland. Woo, yes. Oh, very good. Uh, did you buy that in Scotland? Or your husband did? All right, very good. So we're going to make that an exception to this rule right now. So <laughs> who else? Has, so China, Bangladesh. What else? Indonesia. Who, what else? Thailand. Thailand. All right. What? Philippines. Philippines. Norway. 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 Norway makes clothes? What? All right. So my, my apologies to the Norwegians. So. All right. What, what was that in the back? India. India. All right. All right. All right. End of exercise, right? <laughs> Got to rein it back in. All right. So I want, I'm going to list you the countries that are known for using child slavery to produce clothing for Americans. You ready for this? These are countries that are notoriously known for using child slavery to produce material for the fashion industry and for the clothes that we wear. China, Bangladesh, India, Uzbekistan, Egypt, and Thailand. What that means is that in those countries to make money they're using children, sometimes taking children from their families, putting them to work in factories, dyeing colors, whatever it may be, and they are held accountable to their family's debt sometimes for most of their lives, and they are held in slavery as children to make shirts that we buy. Now that you know that, does that feel good? To know that there are people that are, we're, we're actually, well, and, and when we go to the store and we buy something, I don't know what happens inside of you, but I know what happens inside of me. I go to the store, oh, it's on sale. I'm not looking at where the shirt was made. I'm looking at, I can get 70% off. What's driving my decision? Wealth. The pursuit of wealth is driving my decision, not realizing that I'm actually taking advantage of the poor in some places, not all places, not all companies, but in some places with some companies. And you'd be surprised at some of the brand names that support this practice. Brand names that you and I want to wear to make ourselves look better, to give ourselves status, is actually part of this problem. So do justice. <laughs> what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To do the right thing, to make the right decision, to make the wise judgment that makes sure that we never take advantage of somebody so that we get a better deal. That's justice. I love the next part of what Micah says. He says, embrace faithful love. Some of us, some translations say mercy, but actually I think the CEB, and the reason we draw upon the CEB this morning out of your pew Bibles is because of this phraseology, embrace faithful love. The word used in Hebrew here is hesed which refers to God's covenant love. 
That means we stay committed and in covenant to loving even when it doesn't feel good for us. See, God's love for us is covenantal. God says, I'm not going to give up to you. I'm not going to stop loving you even if you go worship another God or if you go behave badly or go do something. I'm going to stay committed to loving you no matter what. That's covenantal love. That's hesed of God, the Hebrew word. For, and that's God's love, covenantal love for humanity. And so you and I are to embrace that kind of love. We're actually to embrace covenantal love as a love from which we practice. So we do justice, but we also embrace and love people with a covenantal love, like God loves us in Jesus Christ. So that's the covenantal love. I, I, I love watching our church I got to see it firsthand this week. I went to the foster care dinner this past week, and I was able to sit there and listen to some of the stories of the foster care families. And if ever I've seen covenantal love, it's from our foster care families. Because what are they doing? They're taking in kids that are not their biological children, and they're expressing covenantal love to them, and they're saying, I'm not going to give up on you. <laughs> Even when the system's given up on them, even when the system even takes them from them. I saw parent, one parent in tears because the, the child was going to be part of the system, was going to be taken from them. And I just thought I could just feel the heart of this foster mom go out to the kid and what this was doing to the kid and their family. But that's covenantal love, Right? And I was so proud of our church to see our volunteers serving dinner there and making space and room for these foster care families. We've got the giving tree. We're doing that as a part of this season of Advent conspiracy because we're supporting covenant love for foster parents, for orphans, for foster families, for foster children, for those among us who may not have the best life or have the things that we have. We're embracing faithful covenantal love when we do foster care and support foster care through our church or anywhere in the world. So I thank God for our church. You know, I, I read an article this week that two Seattle police officers went undercover, two female officers went undercover and posed as teenagers on the streets, young teenagers on the streets as though they were runaways. They said they were solicited by human sex traffickers within 45 minutes of going on the streets. 45 minutes until someone approached them about joining into that practice. So does foster care matter? Does taking care of foster children matter? You bet it matters. That when we do that, we're doing justice. We're embracing covenantal love in our city. And then the third thing that Micah says is that great line, Walk humbly with God. Walk humbly with God. Which gets back to worship, doesn't it? Because when I worship rightly, I see myself in relationship to God and I put myself in right relationship with God. And so I become a place where I am now listening to God and not listening to my own pursuits and ambitions and desires. So the difference is, is that when I allow God into the car and God is sitting next to me, again, I don't think God takes the steering wheel from our hands. I think God remains us in the driving position, but do you remember anybody ever teach a teenager how to drive? I've done it twice, never doing it again. <laughs> and, you know, there are times where I think God is sitting in the passenger seat 
trying to teach us how to drive our lives. And I bet you God's kind of going, stop, stop. Imaginary break. (laughs) Stop doing that. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. Otherwise, you're going to crash the car of your life. To be humble is to listen to God. (laughs) To be humble is to let God be your GPS. To let God be your Google map in life. To say, God, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to do it every day I get in my car. Right? Because to walk humbly is to be consistent. To walk. Anytime you see that word walk in the scriptures, it means to be consistent daily on a daily basis in your conduct, in your behavior, in the way you live your life, in the way you drive your car. So that you're at the steering wheel of your life. And what are the wheels of your life aimed at? Is it aimed at God? Or is it aimed at some other pursuit or some other ambition or some other thing? Because to worship fully is to actually offer our whole lives to God. The whole thing. I hear people come complain about the church. One of the complaints about the church is they, all they want is my money. You know, all God wants is my money. And then we hear that, right? How many people have ever heard that phrase? How many people have ever said that phrase? No, don't answer. I'm here to tell you it's worse than that. God wants more than your money. God wants all of you. Your money, your house, your job, your family, your material possessions, your heart, your soul, your hands, your feet, your mind. God wants all of it. See, giving money is the easy part, isn't it now? Because God actually wants our whole lives surrendered to God's purposes and God's direction for our lives that is full worship. So we worship not only here on Sunday mornings, we actually worship when we leave here and as we go about our week, we worship every day. We walk humbly with our God. Can you do that? Can you walk in such a way that you let God direct your whole life? Will you do that? Let's pray together.